Welcome to Going Back, 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 the sports history podcast with all the stories you need to know and some you don't. My name is Brian Gay and with me here is my co-host, Tom Young. Each episode, Brian and I will be choosing a story from this week in sports history, and this episode is going to feature two events from March 5th to March 11th. We also cover some of the current hot topics topics in sports, and we just see where the night takes us. All right, so I got one surrounding college basketball tonight, a sports fact for us. Uh, we're going to talk about Pistol Pete Maravich. So he is the all-time leading scorer in NCAA history. He scored 3,666 points over the course of three seasons for the LSU Tigers. So if you took the nation's top 83 single scoring performers in the last three years, you'd have a combined 3,465 total points. So still about 200 short. That's nuts. That's nuts. There was actually, it's funny you say Pistol Pete because the kid that just finished up his his career, uh, I believe it was Detroit Mercy. Yes. Antoine Davis, I want to say his name is. Yep. That's why I kind of brought this one up. Came up four points shy of Pistol Pete's career uh, career number. Yep. But, but the thing is, this Antoine kid had a great career for UC Davis. Not UC Davis, why did I say that? Uh, Detroit Mercy. Please played for five seasons, though, because of the COVID rule. He was able to get an extended year. Yes, yeah. So there's that. Uh, let me see if I can find the uh, the specific statistic. There was like a I saw a picture somewhere. Now, keep in mind, with Pete, he did not have the three-point line either. Yeah, yeah, he did not have the three-point line. Uh, he's now the second. So he ends his career as the second highest scorer in NCAA history, but it took him, I'm not finding the specific infographic I saw, but it's something like so many, 50 more games or something he played than Pete Maravich and still came up four points short. Pistol Pete averaged 44 points per game during his career. This kid was at like 25 or 26. And it was just the longevity. It's nuts. Um I honestly, I don't think that that record like. I don't even com- compare the two realistically. If he if he did break it, it's like the NFL record's getting broken. This you know right like, with the extra game. Yeah, so it's just a whole different time, whole different ball game. Like you said, the three point line is in play now. Pistol Pete scored forty four points a game without it. So those uh, last three years, a combined four hundred and fifty two three point shots were made of that like stat before, where if you took the 83 uh, strongest 83 single game scoring performance over the last three years. Yeah. That 4,600, 452 of those shots were three pointers made. Wow. Oh, I found my, I found the infographic I was looking for. So pistol Pete played in 83 games at LSU, 3,667 points, 44.2 points per game. Zero threes made Antoine Davis played 143 games. So 60 more games than pistol Pete scored 3,000, uh, I think he ended up with 3,663 points, uh, 25 and a half points per game, and he made 584 threes in that period. That's so crazy. I just, like, I obviously we were way too young to truly understand or have seen what Pistol Pete did in the game, but it just sounds like he might have been on a whole different level than almost anybody. You know, I think he put up 76, I think, is his single high for a college basketball game. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty outrageous. You, I feel like you don't see monster scoring numbers like that in college ever. I mean, you had like Jimmer Fredette. That's the guy who I remember who was putting up like the most points recently in college playing out at BYU, but he was fun. It was watch. fun to watch, you know, Jimmer range, but oh yeah, 
he never really translated into anything in the pros. I think he, last I saw, he was playing in like China. Uh, he's or been something. balling in China, but balling over there, <laughs> yeah. like forty points a game or something. But a lot, a lot of guys from that don't make cut it in the NBA go over there and they're superstars. Yeah, even Dwight Howard's over there right now. Yeah, so he was recently participating in a three point contest. Oh yeah, and uh, he's playing in Taiwan, not even <laughs> not even China, um, but he's going over there and kicking butt, and people love him so. Hey, extend your career a little bit longer, earn some more money. Why not? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, Pistol Pete was definitely an interesting character. I'd love to dive into him one day. Um, and his because I know his story, like his life was cut short, and he didn't really. I mean, he had a really good NBA career, but it could have gone longer. So uh, we can dive into that one day. And the thing with Davis, um, the guy who's you know just short of the record, his team didn't have a winning record, so they're not they're and they didn't win their conference tourneys, tourney, mm-hmm. so they're not going to make the NCAA tournament. And they're not going to get an invite to the NIT. So I think there's one other tournament called the CIT. I believe it's called the College like, Invitational. Yeah, CIT or CBC or something like that. I don't. So I had never even really heard of it until it'll be interesting <laughs> to see if the Detroit Mercy gets that invite and allows Dave uh, him to break the record there. Because in theory, it would count because they are sanctioned games. Yep. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. It just yeah, I think they had a record of like ten and like twenty something like. Not a very good team. No, he was just putting up points. I mean, it feels like it feels like the season long equivalent of a guy purposely missing a shot and catching a rebound at the end of a game to get a triple double, <laughs> like <laughs> Russell Westbrook. <laughs> Giannis just did it the other night. Actually, yeah, I think they might have taken that rebound away from. They him did, too. yeah. They typically do. They don't don't typically let that fly. All the guys in the lane just clear out and let Russell come down and <laughs> grab the rebound. And there's your twelfth rebound of the night for Russell Westbrook. Yeah, I. Oh God, I don't know, man. That was, I mean, granted, what he did in that that season where he averaged a triple-double for the year was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, it's impressive not trying to take it away from him, but there's definitely some stats being padded there with yeah. some of those easy rebounds. He's also not a winner. So, like, I mean, you can get triple-doubles all you want, but, you know, I'm not saying championships mean everything. I know we've had that conversation here because I don't believe they do, but none of the teams he's been on have had any serious success. No, the so. best one was probably that OKC Thunder with him, Harden, and Durant, but they broke it up after they lost to the Warriors. Durant jumped ship and left, and then Harden demanded a trade, and Russ was there to fend for himself. I would say, could you imagine if they all st- stayed together, but two of those three were total divas, and the third is still was still a diva, and, but I feel like, and when I say the divas, it's Durant and Westbrook. And I this is coming from someone who is not a James Harden fan, but I particularly, I particularly don't like any of those three. I respect how good they all are individually, but I don't really like any of them. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to like Kevin Durant as good of a basketball player as he is. It kind of just rubs you the wrong way when you're up 3-1 against the Warriors. You end up losing the series and then go and join that team for a couple seasons. It's like, why? Yeah, and then you go from there to Brooklyn, but only only go to Brooklyn if you can have your star-studded super team there with Harden and Kyrie. Yeah, and he originally signed with Kyrie Irving because that's when he had torn his Achilles, so he only yeah. wanted to go there because of Irving, and then Harden forced his way there the following year. Yeah, and that they think they, they played a com- combined 16 games together in that whole span. and Yeah, not much at all, not that, much success, and no. then Harden asked out again. and Then he for- then Durant forced, the, forced their hand and got the trade to Phoenix to go to a contender. and It's just, he, the dude's a snake, and I don't, I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't like him. Uh, he, I feel like to me, he tainted his legacy the minute he fled to the Warriors. And he just continues to do it every season. Like, just, don't come at him on Twitter. He'll, he'll come at with uh, his yeah, burner accounts. So petty, too. Unreal, unreal. 
So off the basketball front, Tom, I know uh, you said the Flyers uh, really dropped the ball on that trade deadline, huh? Yeah, I don't even. I could spend a whole the next hour not even talk about <laughs> what we got tonight about the disappointment I have with the Philadelphia Flyers as a whole right now. I mean, honestly, like baseball and hockey have been my two favorite sports my whole life. I remember, I mean, even growing up watching hockey all the time, I ended up missing Roy Halladay's perfect game because I'm watching game one of the Stanley Cup. I mean, it's it's warranted because it's Flyers, Blackhawks, but still, it's like I missed Roy Halladay's perfect game, get a notification on my phone, Roy Halladay just threw a perfect game, and you're like, wait, what? And I missed it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> the one night I don't watch the Phillies all year so far. Yeah, but, that's, un- that's unfortunate. Yeah, bad timing. Um, so... With the Flyers, I mean, even going back to when I was in college, my roommates would get on me for watching, like, preseason hockey games and, like, prospect games. Like, I've been a diehard Flyers fan. And to just see where the franchise has gone these past couple years, it's honestly just become an embarrassment. Like, I think I've watched maybe one or two full Flyers hockey games this season. Yeah, man, you're preaching to the choir. I grew up with, uh, grew up a Sabres fan and was really, really big into their team growing up. And then, Dude, for 10 years now they were they had been trash and during growing up there were there were some really awesome teams that came through Buffalo and then this year man they're putting it together it looks like Tage Thompson is just Yeah, Tage looks awesome. He's on pace unreal. for what, like 60 goals or so. Yeah, 40 goals. His 40 goals, he's the first 40 goal scorer in Buffalo since I want to say it was Thomas Vanek in like 0607. And that was when I was 13 14 years old. Those teams were the best. I remember watching Vanek and the uh Vanek Roy, Gossett, Miller, Pominville, all in, in Rochester. To the Flyers. Yes, and then you watch them go to Buffalo. I think that's what made the Sabres special to me was that we had their farm team in my hometown, Rochester. And I got to watch them develop and then go up and almost take us to a Stanley Cup and all this. Yeah, and then Bre- I love Danny Breer, Chris Drury. Hated the way that all fell apart. But I was Dominic Kasich in that there too for a while? Yeah, I was like, I, w- I would say I was probably too young to truly understand like appreciate that was, that was like early 2000s right after the yeah. time with the red wings yeah it was probably too young to appreciate um what dominic hasick had was doing for buffalo um definitely as i got older i like look back on it and i'm like he was obviously something special so he actually all right so this is something people do get wrong is he uh one we got him from chicago 1990, he played in Chicago from 90 to 92 as the backup to Ed Belfour. That's right. I forgot that. And then we brought him over. Um, they traded him for another, traded, the Sabres traded a goalie um, and a draft pick that later was turned into Eric Daze. He was actually a pretty decent player for a little while. And then he played nine, nine years in Buffalo, then Detroit. And then Ottawa That's right, and then he finished his Detroit. career kind of in Detroit there. Yeah, I, for, I actually forgot he went, he went to Ottawa. He went to Detroit, Ottawa for a year, and then back to Detroit. I want to say he was with Ottawa when Zidane Ochara was there. Yeah, five oh six. So that would be probably right around that same time. And talk about a duo there. Chara <laughs> clearing the net front for Hasek. Yeah, that's and uh you think they would have been better than they were. But back to the Flyers for a second. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's really just frustrating. I mean Ever since Ed Snyder passed away, and rest in peace, Ed Snyder, the franchise to me has just gone like downhill. Now, they seem to have a really good year going before COVID stopped the season and kind of more or less ruined their hot streak they had going. They were on pace to potentially be the number one seed. Now they go into the bubble. They earn the one seed in some exhibition games, beating the Caps, Bruins, and I think the other team was the Lightning they had to play. They won the round robin. 
But ever since then, it's just been downhill and downhill fast. Every player, it seems like, has regressed besides Carter Hart. He's, I mean, even he struggled for a bit there. Travis Konechny is was stagnant for a bit, but he had a breakout year this year and trending in the right direction. But Ivan Provorov, Travis Sandheim, Joel Farabee, Kevin Hayes just looks like a, you know, a very old version of himself because of those yeah. core surgeries. And it's just, where has the team gone? They're one of the highest capped out teams right up against the salary cap, and they're going to be one of the worst teams this year. Yeah, that's definitely... It's got to be frustrating to watch. I can't say that I've experienced it to like, you know, that kind of miserable <laughs> to to that extent, but I grew up a Buffalo fan. I know plenty about being overpaid and underachieving. So definitely get that in Buffalo. Like I said, we got Tage Thompson just having a great year. Dylan Cousins looks like he's turning into a real deal. Um, second center. Owen Power has been playing incredibly well. He looks like he's in the t- in the top three running right now for the Calder. Yeah, you got Rasmus Dahlin, the former number, number yeah, one Dahlin, from a few years ago. Dahlin, who's really coming into his own. Um, Took him a couple of years, but he's finally got there. Yeah, great puck-moving defenseman, and I think he just needed to get comfortable in the American game um, or the NHL the NHL game compared to playing over overseas. Everyone always says that European and international play is definitely different. than Yeah, that different ice size definitely Especially defensemen, you got to work on your angles differently. Yeah, how to play the puck, it all makes a big difference. Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate. I I want to watch the Sabers more, but it's hard to hard to find. They're never on TV down here, and yeah, unless they somehow get a national game, which they do get a couple a year. Um, but also like it's not like the NFL. I can find a stream anytime I want. I just don't. It's a lot harder to find for NHL. So if you have ESPN Plus, they usually have games on each night. Yeah, I did for a while, but ESPN Plus did not like anytime I wanted to try to stream anything, my account like. Did not want to cooperate ever. Yeah, I mean, so. I usually watch. I mean, just because I love hockey so much, I'll watch other hockey games on ESPN Plus because it's like, well, I don't want to waste my time watching the Flyers. They played the Tampa Bay Lightning last night. I watched maybe ten minutes of actual game time and turned it off. And I was like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to waste my time anymore. No, I get that. I get that. Um, One just, last thought before we change. And yeah. Pivot here. Uh, oh well, yes. Yeah. Dave Scott, sell the team. Fire Chuck Fletcher. <laughs> <laughs> sell anyone you can this offseason. It's a shame they weren't able. I mean, you had James Van Riemsdyk, a proven playoff performer a bit, you know, on an expiring contract. They would have retained half his salary, salary, and they couldn't even get, like, a fourth-round pick for him. It's just absurd. Get rid of Chuck Fletcher. Yeah. Let's start over, and let's see what happens. Well, and now you're you're in the situation where, uh, like, and Fletcher was very, like, open about the fact that he was trying to trade him. So, like, how do you feel if you're Van Riemsdyk and you're on this team? It's like, I'm not giving any effort. He's, he's you said expiring contract right yeah so he's a free agent at the end of the year so yeah. i mean if i was van reams like i would want to be playing well so i can yeah, boost my trade value and potentially go win a stanley cup that's true because he's never won one yeah but i'm oh i'm just saying now at this point now that the trade deadline's passed if i were him i'd do one of two things i'd either ball out and go get that next big contract somewhere or another big con another contract yeah wrap up your career or just kind of like skate off into the into the end of the season with a with uh you know, and just collect your money and get out of here. Yeah, and there's so many other moves that I could discuss and just go on and on about, but <laughs> I don't want to keep doing that and take up our time. No, we're not a Flyers, a Flyers podcast. podcast, so I can't really speak on the Flyers much. So that would uh, that'd be a very one sided <laughs> podcast. I'll take a step back and let's get a word from our sponsor. Yeah, buddy. This episode of Going Back 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 is brought to you by Rucci Heating and Cooling LLC, located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. For all of your heating, air conditioning, and plumbing needs. Call the professionals today at 484-849-1015. Rucci Heating and Cooling LLC, the one-stop call for your business and or home. Call them again at 
849-1015. All right, and we're back. So I kicked off our show last week. What do you got for us uh, tonight, Brian? All right, Tom, tonight we are going back to March 8th, 1971, Madison Square Garden in New York City, the Big Apple. Ooh, MSG. What do we got? MSG, we have the fight of the century. I'm not making that up. That is what it is known as and referred to Joe Frazier versus Muhammad Ali. Round one. They uh, fought three times in their career. This is the first of that um, first of those three fights that kicked off what may end up being the three biggest fights in boxing history. All right, I'm in. I've never watched them. I know about them, but excited to see what you got. Yeah, so I didn't know a ton about this until I started reading into it. I have never been a huge boxing fan. I do enjoy watching it, but I'm not like a, I've never really dove into the history of it. Yeah, I mean, I never really got into boxing. I've definitely gotten into UFC, MMA. I'm more of an MMA guy, too. Years. I mean, we could talk about John Jones the other night submitting Ooh. Cyril Gaon in the first round. Yeah. But yeah. We, yeah, we don't need a, to talk about another group. We'll let you talk about the other yeah, two. Yeah, we can touch on that at some point. All right, so March 8th, 1971 was the fight of the century at the time. Um, this was a heavyweight championship boxing match between WBA, WBC, and the ring heavyweight champion Joe Frazier and former undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali. So the fight's widely regarded as the biggest boxing match in history and arguably, arguably the single most anticipated and publicized sporting event ever. Uh, an international audience observed this spectacle, uh, and it was the first time that two undefeated boxers who held or had held the world heavyweight title fought each other for that very title. So the bout, uh, the bout held broad appeal for many Americans, including non-boxing and non-sports fans. Ali, uh, he was stripped. He had been stripped of his titles by boxing authorities for refusing to submit to the draft of the Vietnam, uh, during Vietnam, and he so he became a symbol of the anti-establishment public during the government support his government supported exile from the ring. Actually, the government imposed that exile. Uh, in contrast, Frazier supported U.S. involvement in the war, and he had been adopted by elements of the public with the opposing view that also were in support of the U.S. in Vietnam. Uh, in addition, both men were very um, very braggadocious, uh, big brav- a lot of bravado, and they really did not like each other. Cassius Clay, right? That was Muhammad Ali beforehand, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so Cassius Clay was Muhammad Ali's birth name. He did, at some point in this process, take on the name Muhammad Ali, and I think that came with a lot of this um, avoiding the draft, refusing yeah, like to the be drafted. From it. Yeah. So, um, going into this, in 1971, both Ali and Frazier were undefeated champions, or in, or in Ali's case, he was the former champion, who both held legitimate claims to the title of world heavyweight champion. He had been stripped of that title. Uh, so, Ali had won the title from Sonny Liston in Miami Beach seven years earlier in 1964 and successfully defended his belt up until he had it stripped by uh, boxing authorities for refusing the dra- refusing to be drafted in, into the armed forces in 67. Um, in Ali's absence, Frazier won two championship belts through elimination tournaments, knocking out Buster Mathis and Jimmy Ellis to replace Ali as the acknowledged world champion. Frazier was plausibly Ali's equal, um, so it created a tremendous amount of hype and anticipation for a match pitting the two fighters against one another both undefeated at the time, to see who was the true heavyweight champ. So with the anticipation for this matchup, ringside seats were $150, which is the, was, uh, the equivalent to about $1,000, uh, between $1,000 and $1,200 today. Yeah, I mean, I would go and pay that to see this type of fight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would consider that. And each man was guaranteed $2.5 million. Wow. Yeah. What's that, like I, $10 million? 
Let's find days. out. I'm not actually sure. I know it's a lot. Um, let's see. Inflation calculator. This is always a fun thing to do. Because um, you don't realize a lot of these, they make so much money for that one, like one fight because of all the, like, the pay-per-view sales, the ticket sales, and like whatever cut they're getting from it. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of, especially in today's today's day. I mean, Floyd, there's a reason Floyd Mayweather was, was and may still be the highest paid of all time. Um, and that's because um, this really just gives, um, they get a ton of views, pay-per-view and, and merchandising and all the stuff they do leading up to it. So they both got $2.5 million for the fight. That today would be about $18.5 million. I only undershot it by about $8 million. Good for them. <laughs> yeah, so it was massive. Um, in addition to the millions who watched on closed-circuit broadcast, broadcast screens, oh my gosh, broadcast screens around the world, the Garden was packed with a sellout crowd of $20,455, 455 people that provided a gate total of $1.5 million, equivalent to close to $10, uh, 10 $11 million today. Man, they're raking it in. Yeah, tons of money coming in around this fight. Like, like they said, and this was a different time too. You gotta you take that into account. Yeah, no social media, no like. Yeah, so like when things were hyped and they were big and they were nationally publicized, everybody was interested. Nowadays, you can access anything and everything, whenever you want. So um, prior to Ali's enforced layoff, he had displayed uncommon speed and agility for a man of his size. Floated like a butterfly, stung like a bee. He had dominated most of his opponents to that point uh, that he often had predicted the round in which he would knock his opponent out. Um, in October 1970, he stopped Jerry Quarry via... Uh, he left him with a bunch of facial cuts after three rounds in his first match after three and a half years out of the ring. However, in his next fight, the last preceding the Frazier fight, Ali struggled at times, but he did end up knocking uh, with a TKO of Oscar Bonavania. In the 15th round, Oscar was an unorthodox Argentinian fighter who was prepared by Hall of Fame trainer Gil Clancy. So on March 4th, 1971, an episode of the Dick Cavett show, Howard Cassell, Joe Lewis, and Jimmy Breslin all correctly predicted that because of Ali's lengthy layoff, Frazier would win in this fight. Now, Joe Frazier had an outstanding left hook and was a tenacious competitor, loved to attack the body um, of his opponent just ferociously. Yeah, those body shots, they, they add up over time. They don't look like much, but yeah, you yeah, they are nasty. So despite suffering from a serious bout of hypertension in the lead-up to the fight, he appeared to be in top form as the face-off between the two champions approached. So prior to the fight, Mark Cram wrote in Sports Illustrated, the thrust of this fight on the public consciousness is incalculable. It has been a ceaseless whir that seems to have grown in decibel with each new soliloquy by Ali, with each dead calm promise by Frazier. It has magnetized the imagination of ring theorists and flushed out polemicists of every persuasion, it has cut deep in the thicket of our national attitudes, and it is a conversational imperative everywhere, from the gabble of big city salons and factory lunch breaks, rife with unreasoning labels, to ghetto saloons with their own false labels. Not so PC, but hey. <laughs> As Gil Clancy, who was in uh, Frazier's Corner that night, would later comment, the, electri- the electricity in the air then was just unbelievable. If they would have dropped the bomb in Madison Square Garden that night, the country wouldn't have been able to run. Yeah, I guess there was that many people there, huh? <laughs> Apparently so. So, um, on the evening of the match, MSG had a circus-like atmosphere with scores of police to control the crowd of outrageously dressed fans, kids, and countless celebrities, from Norman Mailer to Woody Allen. Uh, <laughs> Frank Sinatra wasn't even able to procure a ringside seat, uh, so he was taking photographs for Life magazine instead. He was there as a photographer. Uh, Nelson Mandela was in prison in South Africa during the event, but 
actually went on later to speak about how excited everybody was during this about this fight. So even prisoners in South Africa in 1971 were aware of and apparently watching, maybe possibly watching this fight. I'm sure it's such a worldwide event. Like, how often does these two guys of this magnitude like meet? Like, it's yeah, especially in boxing. I feel and like MMA, you always have these big fights that are always talked about. Like our generation. Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao was like, mm-hmm. you always heard about it, always heard about it. And then it finally happened when probably yeah. both of them, if not, not maybe both, but are over like the hill yeah. out of their prime. And it's like, yeah. well, why didn't this happen five years ago? But yeah, with this fight, totally different story. Yeah. Two guys in, in very good shape. And I don't know if I'd say the prime of their careers, but obviously, I mean, they're both undefeated. The tail of the tape in this match is pretty ridiculous. Um, let me give you some actual stats on who i had it here here it is um at the time smoking joe frazier was 26 and 0 with 23 knockouts he stood at five foot 11 and a half and 205 pounds the greatest muhammad ali was 31 and 0 with 25 ko's at the time standing at six foot three 215 and isn't it crazy that they're considered heavyweights at 205 and 215 yeah that's uh i believe light heavyweight at this point so yeah especially i mean I know UFC, that's light heavyweight, but yeah. like, you look up Tyson Fury, the current like heavyweight champion, he's weighing in at 269 pounds. Yeah, but he's also 6'9". <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a monster, but it's like... Yeah. Totally different story, night and day, between 205 and 269. Yeah. It's a uh, yeah, totally different beast. Um, and, and like we said, Ali's the bigger fighter here, but he was quick, quicker. He's more known for his, his agility and his speed, whereas Frazier was more of the punishing puncher. So, uh, um, um, yep. So I'll, Mandela mentioned that prisoners in South Africa were excited about the fight. Artist Leroy Neiman painted Ali and Frazier as they fought. Burt Lancaster served as a colored commentator for the closed circuit broadcast. And though Lancaster had never performed as a sports con- commentator before, he was fi- hired by the fights promoter, Jerry parent Parencio, who was also a friend. The other commentators were famed boxing play by play announcer, Don Dunphy and former light heavyweight boxing champ, and heavyweight competitor Archie Moore. The fight was sold and broadcast by closed circuit to 50 countries in 12 languages via ringside reporters to an audience estimated at 300 million, a record viewership for a television event at the time. Riots broke out at several several venues as unresolvable technical issues interrupted the broadcast in several cities in the third round, and although no live radio coverage of the fight itself was allowed under the terms of the promotion, the Mutual Radio Network did broadcast the fight the night of March 8th with announcers Van Patrick and Charles King, together with many other sports commentators providing round-by-round summaries live as they came out over the UPI and AP wire services. The uh, referee for the night for the fight was Arthur Mercante Sr., who spent the night breaking up Ali's clinching and holding Frazier behind the head. After the fight, Mercante, a vet- veteran referee of hundreds of fights, said, they both threw some of the best punches I've ever seen. Not a surprise, I mean... You're yeah. talking about two greats here. Yeah, combined 57 wins between them and no losses at this point. I got to go back and watch this. Yeah, this may, I, I think I might be doing the same. So the fight itself exceeded many fans' expectations and actually ended up going the full 15-round championship distance with Ali dominating the first five rounds, peppering the shorter Frazier with rapier-like jabs that raised welts on the champion's face. Did you know boxing matches used to go like a lot longer than 15 rounds <laughs> back in the day? Yeah, I've I've read. So boxing is a very long history and it was one of the most popular sports in the country for a long time and throughout the world. Yeah, I believe hunt like 100 plus rounds at one point. Yeah, until or someone would quit. Basically until someone got quit or knocked, quit yeah. or got knocked out. 
Um, so the first five rounds, Ali was totally dominant, but he was visibly tired after the sixth round. And though he put together some flurries of punches after that round, he was unable to keep the pace that he had set in the first third of the fight. At one minute and 59 seconds into round eight, following his clean left hook to Ali's right jaw, Frazier grabbed Ali's wrists and swung Ali into the center of the ring. However, Ali immediately grabbed Frazier again until they were once again separated by Mercante. So that uh, animosity they had between each other was really starting to come out here by the by the eighth round. Uh, so nine seconds into the 11th round, Frazier caught Ali with a left hook to the right jaw, and a fraction of a second later, Ali dropped to the canvas with both gloves and his right knee touching. Despite this, Mercante did not signal a knockdown, and neither did Mercante call time to wipe the canvas as if Ali had uh, as Ali, if Ali had slipped on a wet spot. Instead, Mercante waved off the knockdown as if it had never happened. Should probably have counted on the scorecards for Frazier. That sounds like a clean knockdown, but I am definitely no boxing judge. Yeah, I'm not either. I mean, <laughs> tough to see without the visual aspect of it, but I would how you described it, it seems like that's a clean knockdown. I don't know what more Frazier has to do. Right. About nine seconds later in round one, uh, the referee signaled that the, for the fighters to engage once again. About two minutes and te- at two minutes and ten seconds of the round. Frazier staggered Ali again with another left hook. Ali's knees buckled, only bouncing off the ropes, keeping Ali from hitting the canvas again. For the remainder of the round, uh, Ali stumbled around the ring, backing again and again into the ropes and grabbing at Frazier as Frazier continued battering him until the fighters were separated by Mercante at 2.55 into the round. Heading into round 15, all three judges had Frazier in the lead. 7-6-1, 10-4-0, and 8-6-0. And Frazier closed convincingly. Early in the round, he landed a left hook that put Ali on the canvas. Uh, Ali's jaw was noticeably swollen at the time. He got up at the count of four and managed to stay on his feet for the rest of the round, despite several terrific blows from Frazier. A few minutes later, the judges made it official. Frazier had retained the title with a unanimous decision, dealing Ali his first professional loss. So, Muhammad Ali, being the uh, (laughs) brash character he is, refused to publicly admit defeat and sought to define the outcome in the public's mind as a white man's decision. Uh, thinking that the white judges were against him due to his um, character and his personal beliefs. But correct me if I'm wrong, isn't Joe Frazier African-American as well? Yeah, but Joe Frazier was pro the war and more stoic. He wasn't the braggadocious, the sure. real big uh, personality in your face guy that Ali was. Um, so Frazier, Joe Frazier actually went on to lose the title 22 months later when he was knocked down six times in the first two rounds by George Foreman uh, back before his grill days. George. Yep. And their brief but devastating January 26, 1973 title bout in Kingston, Jamaica. Uh, didn't, George, didn't he name like all of his kids George Foreman too? All of his sons? I believe so, yeah. And Talk I think he, even his daughter, I believe he did something. He like tweaked his name for her. Um, Bizarre. Yeah, so... After this, um, Ali later went on to defeat Frazier in their second. Uh, let's see. Ali split two bouts with Ken Norton in 1973 and was viewed, viewed by many as on a downward slide before a win in a rematch. Ali Frazier, two in January 74. That October, Ali shocked the world with a victory in Kinshasa Zaire over, over the heavily favored foreman to regain the heavyweight title in the fight known as the Rumble in the Jungle. Another very famous fight in For boxing sure. history. So Ali later did uh, go on to match up for a third and final time. Um, this one also one of the big ones in sports, the Thriller in Manila. By the time of the rematches, the social climate in America had settled down with the Vietnam War having ended in 1973. 
Uh, many had dismissed their previous notion that Ali was a traitor and he was once again accepted as the heavyweight champion. People who had supported Frazier on political and racial grounds in the first bout um, so that they could see Ali get beat, they were less less into that angle and abandoned him after he lost his championship. Without the same social divide, with the unknown of whether Ali could ever regain enough his former greatness to dominate post-layoff, uh, to dominate post-layoff, partially answered, and without the impetus of two unbeaten champions meeting one another for the first time, neither the second nor the third matchup would attain that unprecedented hype of the first, which I totally get. At the time, they were both undefeated. Both had a legitimate claim to world heavyweight champion. After that, you know, that it was it was tainted, and then I understand having to run, run the best of three at that point. You know, you, so you can't have it 1-1 one, one and then just go on your way. So that's what it feels like a lot of boxing matches do that these days they sign like a contract for like a three fight yeah three fight contract basically three yeah i, I think you know if the if one guy wins the first two though you shouldn't even bother with the third yeah just let it go because then if the other guy wins then it's like oh do you have to run it back and like allow the guy to be up three to one or you just call it a day and you're down two one in the sure. contract yeah this um yeah, this fight was definitely an interesting it was kind of a juxtaposition for the two men um, Ali's Muhammad Ali's biographer Wilfred Sheed uh, wrote rather hyperbolically of the fight. Both men left the ring changed. Uh, the ring has changed men that night. For Frazier, his greatness was gone. That unquantifiable combination of youth, ability, and desire. I think largely because he like he climbed the tallest mountain in boxing. I mean, he beat Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I mean, what else do you have left to prove at that point? Yeah, and for Ali, the public hatred he had so carefully nursed to his advantage, he really, he really like played into it. He was almost like a heel in wrestling. Um, so that hatred he so carefully nursed to his advantage came to a head and burst that night, and has never been the same. To his supporters, he became a cultural hero. His detractors finally gave him grudging respect. At least they had seen him beaten and seen that smug look wiped off his face. Uh, last but not least, boxing historian Burt Sugar said, as Ali's image and myth and name and reputation grew, Joe's was sure to suffer. The winner that night was the loser, and the loser that night was the winner. Interesting. I mean, I've always known about this fight. I've always known about Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Sonny Liston, all those great boxing legends at heavyweight, but I don't know much about about them besides their names and that they were champions at different levels and courses of their career. Yeah, it was so long ago, and obviously, I mean, years before either of us were even born, that it's hard to, I think, fully grasp the cultural dynamic of this fight. And I understand what they're saying, though, where there were a lot of people that did not like Muhammad Ali for his, his views on the war and for being a proud, brash, loud black man. Whereas Joe Frazier was quieter. It sounds like, at least from what my understanding was quieter, supported the war, appealed to a certain crowd as well. So I think he went out there and he hit the highest of highs. Like you said, he beat Ali. And I think there was something humanizing and uh, humbling about seeing Ali get knocked out. It put a, like, knocked that, like they said, knocked that smug look off his face. So I'm going to, I plan to watch this fight. Uh, very curious to to dive into it and and actually see what happened. It sounds like you're in for in for a long one though if you sit through it. Yeah, all well, fifteen minutes. Thankfully, they're not five minute rounds like UFC. I think it's what three minute rounds. Does that sound right for boxing? I don't know. Then even back then, I couldn't even tell you. Yeah, back then it might have been different than what we see now too. Yeah, so that is the story of they say the uh, was it the greatest fight ever. 
The fight of the century. That's the yeah. That's the fight the of the century. I mean, proper terminology. Fight of the century. If anyone has a stream they can send us to watch it, <laughs> feel free to send it over to us on any direct messages. If not, I guess we'll have to find it ourselves. I'm sure we can find it on YouTube say, somewhere. I imagine it's on YouTube. If it's if it's that big of a fight, um, I would say it's on YouTube somewhere. So that's it for me, Tom. What do you got? All right, so tonight I'm going to talk about Charles Dylan Stengel, DDS, or otherwise known as Doctor of Dental Surgery. So you're thinking, well, that's not a sports guy. Who's this? Well, Charles Dylan Stengel, otherwise known as Casey Stengel, was one of the most like eccentric baseball players and managers in baseball history. Are, do you know anything about this guy, Brian? I, you know, I've heard I've heard stories of him. Um, like like you said like like you baseball has been a long time uh love of mine and i did used to i used to a lot look into a lot of the history of the game and his name popped up a lot i did not know he was a dentist though yeah so he started out to try to be a dentist before pursuing baseball because he was told by the dean of his school he said why don't you be an orthodontist that way i could have a lot of rich kids and put a black filling in their mouth the dean said he and the dean advised him just always be a little bit different so I think that kind of resonated with, with Casey when he entered his baseball career. So he was in the game of baseball for the better part of 54 years. Um, so he actually started out as a player in the game. Most know him as a coach, but he began his career with the Brooklyn Dodgers, first appeared in the big leagues in 1912. His first full season was actually the following year in 1913 and was actually the first player to bat and hit a home run at Ebbets Field. Oh, wow. Okay. So he spends the first six years in the big leagues playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, so this is where he's actually like a full-time player, hits for an average of 279. So not too bad. Now, honestly, the most impressive stats I found on him on baseball reference were his stolen base numbers. So one year he stole 19 bags during this 1913 season, but he was also caught 17 times. <laughs> so not too good at what he's doing there. And then two years later, he only manages five stolen bases, but is then caught 10 times. Stop running. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you should get that notion, but hey, keep keep trying, Casey. I'm very curious about that because you watch like when you see old clips clips of old baseball, I mean obviously there's not much from the nineteen tens. Never looks like there's guys with that great of an arm, especially behind the plate. Yeah, and it's not like the pitchers were throwing hundred miles an hour like they are today and it's very possible they might have been. If you if you go back and listen to and read some of the quotes and stories that guys talk about. Yeah, like Rube Waddell. Yeah, Rubidell, uh, Walter Johnson, they say, threw incredibly hard as well. But, you know, you'll, you will never know. It's all hypotheticals. Yeah. I, well, you also have to think, I feel like the athlete wasn't as good back in the day either. A lot of those guys are probably potentially drinking during the game, eating hot dogs. Like, you always hear the stories about <laughs> Babe, Babe Ruth. Ruth. But even that, even if after the game, they're probably coming up, hung, showing up hungover to the ballpark the next oh, yeah. day, like staying out till 3, 4 in the morning after yeah. a game. They're not the built-in-a-lab athletes we have today. No, totally by, different. By any means. Don't have the trainers, don't have the dietitians, all those all those good things. Yeah. So after playing with the Brooklyn Dodgers, he moves on to playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates for two years, becomes more of a part-time player, and then has a two-year stint with the Phillies. Um, so he spends a, full, spends a full year here and plays 129 games that season. He manages to hit 292 for the Phillies, steals seven bases, but ends up being caught 13 times. <laughs> Again, I think you should just stop trying to run. But <laughs> yeah, no, knock it off. Hey, to each their own, I guess. So needless to say, he isn't the best base stealer. 
Now, during the middle of the 1921 season, Casey's actually traded from the Phillies to the New York Giants. So he was gaining plenty of attention for his on-the-field antics, and this was a sign of things to come for him. So while playing in the 1923 World Series for the Giants, he actually hits a home run in Game 1. Go to Game 3, he hits another home run, and while rounding the bases, he actually thumps his nose at the Yankees bench as he rounds third base. Now, Brian, imagine if Bryce Harper had done that last year against the Astros. That would have been awesome. See, the thing is, I would have said I would have been all for that. Especially in like today's social media age, it would have exploded. Oh, yeah. Now, the commissioner of baseball at the time, Kennessee Mountain Landis. What a name, by the way. Oh, yeah, Kennesaw Landis. Yeah, that guy. So he was actually at the game in attendance and promptly fined Stengel for, for his antics after the game. So he sticks around in the majors for two more years before he starts his managerial career. He began coaching in the minors, and the legend of Casey started to grow from there. He once released himself as a player, fired himself as a manager, and even resigned as owner of Boston's minor league club before going to manage a team in AAA Toledo. Talk about a major swing going from Boston, a storied franchise, to AAA ball in Toledo. Yeah, so the only thing that I truly know about Casey Stengel is that he was a pretty interesting character and made, (laughs) made a lot of interesting choices. Yeah, there's a language, per se language out there, known as uh, Stengelese for like his funny like quotes and sayings and whatnot. I actually know nothing about it. There's a book in this closet right here that's it's baseball shorts, and it's I, I got it as a kid, and I still have it today, but it's a lot of like old like one-liners and quotes about various topics from... I'm sure he's got a lot of them. Yeah, it's a lot of him and Yogi Berra, uh, Bob Uecker. That has to be a great book. <laughs> I, I can send it with you. Might be some good reading for tomorrow morning. Yeah, it's just a little, little quick bits. So Casey, he now gets his first shot in the majors to manage with the Dodgers. He coaches them for two years before going to the Braves, where he manages them for another two years. Um, unfortunately, though, his career as a coach does not get off to the best of starts, and he's not in the Hall of Fame because of that. Uh, Casey was even quoted to say, I became a major league manager in several cities and was discharged. We call it discharged because there's no question I had to leave. <laughs> so as you can see, this guy has, has some good one-liners there. Oh, yeah. A little bit, maybe a little bit before his time. Um, now, for Casey, he didn't make it his first go-around as a major league coach. He actually goes back down to the minors and hones his craft. Um, so you can tell by his record he's getting better. He manages to have three three years in the minors of those five where his teams won 100 games or more. So that was good enough to get him a shot back in the show again, this time with the ever-popular New York Yankees. He's named manager of the club in 1949, and at one point during his tenure said, there is less wrong with this team than any other team I've ever managed. It's hard to argue with that, because Casey, he has the likes of Yogi Berra, Phil Rizzuto, Joe DiMaggio, and the guy we covered last week, Mickey Mantle. I mean... I think you and I could go out there and manage and win some World Series titles with that kind of talent. (laughs) Yeah, they make it easy. So to start off his career managing the Yankees, he wins five straight World Series. So he's often credited with bringing back to the game the practice of platooning his players when he took over for the Yankees, a tactic he had learned from his mentor and Hall of Fame manager, John McGraw, during his playing days with the Giants, where Casey was actually unofficially um, the assistant coach for the team. So when asked to explain his managerial style and strategy, Casey said, keep the five guys who hate you away from the five who are undecided. 
this guy's really something. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I'm on a page right now. I looked up some of his his famous quotes, and one of which is like, "You got to get 27 outs to win." Like, all right, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Casey. Thanks, Captain Obvious. <laughs> now, after losing the 1960 World Series, the Yankees end up dismissing Casey as their manager, citing his advanced age for the reason. So during his 12 years with the Yankees, he wins 10 American League pennants along with seven World Series titles. Talk about a great run. Now, only out of the game for one season, he comes back to manage the 1962 New York Mets, crosstown rival of those Yankees who were actually an expansion team. Now, they became the newest baseball's lovable losers as the Mets ended up losing 404 games over the course of that three-year coaching tenure. (laughs) Having such a bad team... It prompted Casey to say, can't anybody play this game? Well, Casey doesn't seem like they can. (laughs) He's got a good one about his 1969 Mets. He says, this club plays better baseball now. Some of them look fairly alert. (laughs) Good for them. They turned around, I guess. So that's the end of his coaching career when he ends with the Mets in 1965. His seven World Series titles actually tie him with another Yankees manager, Joe McCarthy, for the most of all time. Oh, wow. Now, the interesting thing about Casey is most people, they have to wait five years before they're eligible to be on the Hall of Fame ballot. So baseball commissioner at the time, Ford C. Frick, announced on March 8, 1966, that he had been elected to the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee. So one year after he, not even a year because he finishes up the 65 season, he's then elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's pretty quick. How So how old would he have been at the time? So he was 76 at the time. So I guess I could see them wanting to get it done while he's alive. Yeah, unfortunately for Casey, he ended up passing away in 1975. So about nine years later, he passed away from, passed away out of there. Um, so that summer, he goes into the Baseball Hall of Fame with Red Sox legend Ted Williams. It's a pretty great class, if you ask me. Yeah, it's really solid. So in typical Casey fashion, his speech took up more time than Ted and the fellow inductees who are also getting honored that that year. Um, So about 20 minutes was his speech, and he reminisced on some of his favorite baseball memories in front of about 7,000 fans in Cooperstown. But it wouldn't be a Casey Stengel speech without an interesting remark or two. He said, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank my parents, and I'm thankful I had baseball knuckles and couldn't become a dentist. (laughs) So kind of like I touched on earlier, he had his own, you know, sayings and whatnot known as Stangalese. You touched on one. You got to get 27 ounce to win. That's his, you know, a real obvious one. And then there were some really odd ones like there comes a time in every man's life and I've had plenty of them. <laughs> yeah. So he's got, he's got a lot, a lot of good ones like that. But that, you no, know, that's about Casey. I mean, seems like a great manager. I mean. Is he a great manager? I guess it's tough to say when you get to trot out players like Yogi Berra, Joe DiMaggio, and Mickey Mantle, but to win seven titles and 10 American or 12 American League pennants, it's impressive, though. Well, if you ask Sparky Anderson, uh, he was quoted as saying, I don't believe a manager ever won a pennant. Casey Stengel won all of those pennants with the Yankees. How many did he win with the Boston Braves and the Mets? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you got a sack, they got a loaded team like those those Yankees teams, it's hard to... uh, Hard to argue. Actually, uh, I'll give you one more. This is actually a story from Phil Rizzuto about Casey Stengel that I find pretty amusing. So Phil Rizzuto said, I'll never forget September 6th, 1950. I got a letter threatening me, Hank Bauer, Yogi Berra, and Johnny Mize. It said if I showed up in uniform against the Red Sox, I'd be shot. 
I turned the letter over to the FBI and told my manager, Casey Stengel, about it. You know what Casey did? He gave me a different uniform and gave mine to Billy Martin. Can you imagine that? Guess Casey thought it'd be better if Billy got shot. <laughs> I guess Billy wasn't that valuable to the team. Uh, Billy Martin was not a very well-liked person. Did he become manager of the Yankees for a bit? Um, I believe three times, actually. Yeah, yeah. That was a, Billy Martin had a very... Uh, that was a circus in and of itself. Yeah, Billy Martin had a very uh, back-and-forth relationship with George Steinbrenner. Very dysfunctional. He was the Yankees manager from 75 to 78 uh, in 79 and 83. 85 and 88. Yeah, all very short stints. Yeah, dude, there's Crazy. a we, Billy Martin can be a whole story in and of in and of himself. His Wikipedia page is about Yeah, it's extremely long. Holy cow. Um, but yeah. Now another one here from Sparky Anderson on Casey. He said Casey knew his baseball. He only made it look like he was fooling around. He knew every move that was ever invented and some that we haven't even caught on to yet. So maybe Casey really was a, you know, great baseball mind and seemed like he Earned that that trip to Cooperstown and yeah. his plaque in, in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it sounds like he was a, a big showman, big personality in the game. And did you know that he once caught a bird while playing in the outfield of a, of a major league game? I did not. Good, good <laughs> yeah. for you, Casey. I don't have any more info on that than than that, but that is what I just came across that here going looking through some of some info about him. So yeah, there's some he is he's fascinating. He was also I I think you said this, but he was the first ever manager of the Mets. Yes. Yeah. He, was he coached first, them for three years. First ever manager of the Mets. 404 losses. Not getting the franchise off their great start. No, they were very bad for a very long time. Uh, um, I mean, you could still argue they are bad. Well, he had a, he, uh, talking about his 1962 Mets, he said, we've just got to learn to stay out of triple plays. <laughs> so so that gives you any idea how they, <laughs> how they were doing at the time. Sounds like the Bad News Bears. Yeah. So I'll have to, uh, I'll have to give you that book. I... I I have read it at least growing up. I read it so many times. Um, it's so many great quotes and it exposes you to the, cause especially cause I probably got the book in the early two thousands maybe. So like if you think about who's actually in it, it's old, old names. So you'll get a real who's who of the characters and, and history of the game. And I remember just finding it really amusing as a, even as a kid, uh, I think going back now as an adult would be even more interesting. As a 10-year-old, I can't imagine it was something you might have appreciated as much. So I think it would be definitely better to read now and appreciate what yeah. what's in it. I mean, I, I always love that stuff. And the history of baseball, I mean, I, I love, obviously, we do this podcast. I love the history of sports as a whole. But I think it was really my love and history and the history of baseball that is what really, really did this to me. Um, that really got me into all of this. I think, I don't know if I told, did I tell the the, the postcard story on this podcast yet? I don't think so. All right, well, I'll give you that one real quick because it's sitting right behind me. And so one, one day we'll have the, a video of these uh, recording sessions. But back when I was in elementary school, I want to say this was fourth or fifth grade. My family took us down to Cooperstown, uh, home of the Baseball Hall of Fame. I haven't been back since. I'd love to go. Yeah, I've never been, actually. That's um, something I want to do. That'd be a fun little. Well, it's a fun little. It'd be a really cool summer trip. Um, so... I, when we were there, my parents let me pick out some souvenirs, and I decided I had this idea. I decided I wanted to get the plaque postcards. I was going to take them home. I was going to use Google, and back before Google, the internet and everything was as sophisticated as, as it has become. Had your AOL dial-up connected and couldn't <laughs> use the landline? Yeah, you know, working on my parents' desktop computer. Um, I decided to go Google the addresses for these players, and believe it or not, 
I found a lot of them. So what I did is I hand wrote a bunch of letters. Definitely different than today. Their addresses are not very public. Yeah, very private. So I uh, I hand wrote a bunch of letters saying, "Hey, my name is Brian. I'm a you know ten year old whatever big baseball fan and big fan of your career." Um, I enclosed the postcard plaques and a self-addressed envelope said, Hey, I would really appreciate if you could sign this and send it back to me. Um, I'd really love that. Thank you. And blah, blah, blah. My parents were awesome. They stamped them, got them sent out and I thought nothing of it. And then weeks, weeks later, my dad picks me up from school and he's like, Hey, you got some mail. And as a kid, anytime you, you got mail as a kid, you knew it was something cool. Like, like, you're not getting bills or ads or anything. What know? am I getting mail for? Yeah, exactly. So he hands me the letter. I'm sitting in the passenger seat of the car, and, I, and I'm and i looking at it. I'm like, wait, that's I wrote this. This is from me. That's my handwriting. And I just remember my heart just racing. Because I was like, oh, my. Like, the, who is it? What is this? And I opened this thinking, you know, I was thinking it's going to be one of the lesser-known guys I'd send it to, like Al Kaline or Eddie Murray. Um, again, not like they're unknowns, but they're smaller names. I opened that. The very first one of these cards I got back was none other than the home run king himself, Mr. 755, Hammer and Hank Aaron, and I nearly died. It was like the most exciting, like, because to me, that was the holy grail one. Yeah, what more can you ask for? Yeah, like, he is the home run king. That was, well, he was just, the home run king. It was, I know, I know. At, at the time, and and there was nobody even close to getting nobody getting close to him at that yeah, point. Yeah, Bonds was Bonds was getting close. To Bonds was probably thousands. You said right? Yeah, Bonds was probably five, six, seven years down the road. I don't remember exactly when he eclipsed that, but uh, or what year that was. But then, so to get him first was crazy. Um, but then, over the course of the next few weeks or months, I ended up getting autographed cards back from um, Stan Musial. Ernie Banks, Lou Brock, L. Kaline, and Ozzie Smith. Obviously, I have the Hank Aaron and Ozzie Smith here. I don't know where the other ones ended up. I'm really frustrated about that. Gonna have to ask mom and dad about that one. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. They don't seem. To, I figured they brought me some of my old stuff. I figured they might be in there, but I just don't know where they would have where they would have gone. Um, but it, then oh, I think Joe Morgan might have been one as well. Yeah, all um, great names. Yeah. So and that's crazy. Like they're all like big recognizable names. But I also did the same thing with um, so a couple of baseball cards. Only got a few of those back, though, because the current players are probably a lot busier. Yeah, um, sure. I got J- Jamie Moyer when he was about 14 years into his 25-year <laughs> career. Local product. Yep, yep. Local, yeah, he is a local guy. And yeah, I believe he went to Conestoga High School. Mm, yeah, so I, something like that. I was just on his Wikipedia the other day because he popped into my head because he, um, Jamie Moyer, was a teammate of Nolan Ryan, and DJ LeMayhew. And that just shows that kind of the range. I think LeMayhew was one of the youngest guys. He was who's active, he's still actively playing. Um, yeah, I got one for Jamie Moyer on you. When he retired, he had faced uh, 8.9% of all MLB hitters to ever <laughs> yeah. play the game. Yeah, he's has crazy longevity. Um, and just a, that, he's a fascinating story as well. Uh, then the other one I got, which I thought was pretty cool, it's Ken, Kenny Lofton. Okay. He actually sent me back. I believe he was actually playing for the Phillies at the time. Um, I want to maybe this was this was might have been later. It wasn't the same time as the home run uh, or the Hall of Fame plaques, but I'm about 99% sure because I sent him a card and he sent me back. I'm guessing he had pre-signed a bunch of stuff and they sent me like a pre-signed like eight by not eight by ten, like a five by seven. Okay. Um, I, I forgot w- he played with the Phillies. I was 05. 
Yeah, so 38 years old. That timing would make sense because I would have been 12 years old. So that, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because I'm pretty confident it was actually a Phillies Kenny Lofton. And he hit 335 that year. <laughs> really? At 38. I always found him to be a fascinating player. And I like, he was a real, like, he really jumped his way around the league. Like, he played for a lot of teams in his career. He did. He had, uh, let's see, 30, 22 stolen bases that year as well. He played with the, looks like Astros was his rookie year, plays with the, Cleveland now Guardians for a while. I saw That's him playing Cleveland as a kid. Majority of his career. Then he goes to the White Sox, the Giants, Pirates, Cubs, Yankees, Phillies, Dodgers, Texas Rangers, and then uh, gets traded, I guess, back to the Cleveland Guardians at the end of the 2007 season and retires there. He just wanted to build up a huge jersey collection, apparently. Yeah, apparently. I mean, he had a long career. In 91, he debuted and retired in 07. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he did have a long career. Um, but yeah, go back to the, the baseball history. I, it's just always been a, I, I know for you as well, but it's always been a love for me. I had a giant baseball almanac that I would literally just sit and flip through. And it was just like all the stats from all these players over the, the various years. Yeah, and it's right up on all these stories. It's yeah. really interesting. I mean, it has the deepest, longest history of any of the major four sports in the U S NFL has a great, really cool history. NHL has a really deep history as well. If you dive into that and then, um, NBA, is actually NBA probably has the least history as a specific league. Like the NFL has been around quite a while. NFL NBA kind of came into prominence around the same yeah, time. Yeah, same time. Um, NHL, like the original six, have been around for yeah, a long they, time. I mean, I can remember back like what, 1920s or so, I think is maybe when hockey started. So a little bit before that. Yeah, pro hockey, yeah. At least the NHL, I believe. Yeah, with the original six, like you just mentioned. Yeah, so I mean, it's... There's so much that we can cover, and I think it's the exact reason that this was the way we were going with this podcast. So um, for those of you that do listen, if you have any stories, sports, teams, players, anything that you want to hear about, let us know. Hit us up on Instagram. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, at Going Back Pod. Um, we're super receptive. We want you to hear. We want to give you the stories you want to hear. Um, and yeah, we, it doesn't always have to be something Brian and I choose. Yeah, no, no, absolutely not. I mean, there's plenty of plenty of info out there, and even if it doesn't fit uh, fit this this current week, we, you know, if it gives us something to look into, I'm always looking to learn about things I either know of or don't know. Yeah, always looking to learn more. Why well, just be you know satisfied with what I know? Always looking to expand our knowledge base. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Tom, it looks like it might be time to sign off here. Do you have anything else you want to add before we uh, we head out this evening? Yeah, hopefully this tel- tip helps all you out out there. Uh, like Michael Scott once told Dwight Trout, don't be an idiot. <laughs> all right, thanks for listening. Follow us at Going Back Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week.